Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. When Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards at the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, tie on your sandals, and so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, and because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We pray that you would help us to see that Christ reigns, that persecution doesn't mean that he's stopped reigning or that he's given up reigning. Persecution means that his reign is not yet consummated and that through many tribulations we must inherit the kingdom of God. Lord, we praise you for your vengeance on Herod and on the guards. We ask that you would give us the grace, the stamina, the strength, not to fear persecution, rather to understand that Christ reigns even over persecutors. We pray then that you would fortify our hearts with this sermon. Help me to speak boldly and powerfully 
about the Lord Jesus and his reign over persecutors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week we have a Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully we're all aware of that. The most Christian holiday of the year in one sense because it's a holiday that's all about being good, being grateful. It's virtue where our leaders tell us, be grateful. A lot of people, a lot of Christians don't feel very grateful right now. Now, You don't have to talk to most people for more than a minute or two to hear that Our brothers and sisters in the United States and probably in other countries too are not particularly happy right now. Our rulers are losing their minds or maybe it's our fellow citizens or some combination of the two. Peter and John, James, they were familiar with a scenario like that. Luke addresses this head on. So just like he did in chapter 1, remember how does Acts start? Oh yeah, with the reminder about Judas. And, well, we need to find a replacement for Judas because he betrayed Jesus and killed him. Luke is not interested in trying to hush up the seamy side, the dark side, the tough side of the Christian life. And so here, he's very forthright about it. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand and killed James. This happens to Christians. You get persecuted and martyred. Stephen made himself a nuisance. Stephen went and argued in the synagogue for a long time before they stoned him. James was just going about his business and Herod said, I don't like you anymore, James. Whacked his head off. So Luke is telling us persecution is normal. And persecution is no evidence that Christ has stopped reigning. Rather, Christ reigns even over persecutors. So if you look around at the world and say, this is too nutty, this is crazy, the the -the fill-in-the-blank group that's on the opposite side of your group don't understand what they're talking about, don't know what they're doing, have it out for us, Luke would say, yeah, 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 we've been here. You guys have no idea. Who from your church was beheaded this week? Oh, that's right. Nobody. So I don't want to hear about how it's the worst the Christians have ever seen. It's not. That's what Luke is telling us. Christ reigns over persecutors. Don't live in fear. Live in love, joy, peace, and gratitude. So let's look at this. Persecution, rescue, revenge, and then at the end of the chapter, renewal. First, persecution. Herod stretches out his hand. Now this is not Herod the Great who killed the boys of Bethlehem. This is not his son, Herod Agrippa, who killed Jesus or helped Pilate kill Jesus. This is a different Herod, Herod Antipas. Now Luke doesn't mention these distinctions because... As he knows, no one really cares. Luke just calls them all Herod because they are all Herod. Uh, Those of us from the Midwest remember Chicago, Mayor Daly. There were at least three Mayor Dalys. Didn't matter. Like They're all the same. They're just Mayor Daly. So here we have Herod. Doesn't matter which Herod. He is opposed to the reign of Christ. And this Herod, in particular, 
or in general we could say, one of the longtime enemies of the people of God is at it again. Herod is opposed to the gospel. Right? What else is new? The rulers of Mecca are not Christians. Surprise, surprise. Herod is opposed to the apostles. Earthly rulers can stand against Christ and his people and do stand against Christ and his people. Earthly rulers can stand against Christ. They do stand against Christ. And here's Luke's point. The reign of Herod is not a threat to the reign of Christ. It's vice versa. The reign of Herod is not a threat to the reign of Christ. But the reign of Christ is a threat to the reign of Herod. And thus when Herod heard that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Right When Jesus hears that Herod is on the throne, is he troubled and all Jerusalem with him? No. The reign of Christ is a threat to the reign of Herod, which is why Herod stretches out his hand, seizes James, seizes Peter, and decides to kill James. Why is the reign of Christ a threat to the reign of Herod? Because the reign of Christ says, earthly rulers, your days are numbered. The kingdom that cannot be shaken is on the horizon. Your kingdom will fail. This kingdom that's coming cannot fail. And the kingdom of Christ invites men and women to give it their highest allegiance so that they no longer fear Herod as the ultimate in authority and power. That's why Herod is troubled. That's why he's attacking the church. Christ comes and says, I have a kingdom, you can join my kingdom, and then you don't have to live in fear of Herod. Herod says, no, you must fear me. See, I can kill you. Pilate literally said to Jesus, don't you know that I have power to kill you or power to release you? And Jesus says, where do you think you got that power? Where do we think that Herod gets his power? Where do we think that our rulers today get their power? The kingdom of Christ means that you don't have to fear the sword of Herod. It doesn't mean that Herod will never kill you, never hurt you, but it means you don't have to live in fear of him. Jesus' reign is not yet consummated, but Jesus still reigns. So he kills James with the sword. Martyrdom is a real thing. It's not terribly common, but it does happen. It happened to James. It happened to Stephen. It's happened to many other Christians throughout history. And it's happening today. That doesn't mean there is no Jesus. The church is all a fiction. It means that Christ doesn't express his reign or doesn't use his reign to always preserve the lives of his people. We can apply it to our own country. We're all American citizens in here. American citizens get killed in other countries. Not terribly often, but it happens. 
What can we say? There is no Department of State. The U.S. government does not exist. The United States of America has no power. No, that's not what the death of an American citizen abroad means. Any more than the martyrdom of James means that Christ is not reigning. He is reigning. Unlike the federal government, which can't save the lives of all Americans everywhere, though Christ could save the life of all his people everywhere, he chooses not to for the sake of a bigger goal, which is the spread, the progress, the advance of his kingdom. So Peter is imprisoned. Herod wants to please his constituents like any good politician. Pleases the Jews to kill James. Pleases the Jews to kill Peter. And so Peter, like Christ, gets arrested at Passover. And Herod is ready to kill him immediately after the feast. So what does the church do? How does the church respond to persecution? Well, the response to persecution begins and ends with prayer. Notice verse 5. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Verse 12. He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. The frame around the narrative of Peter's deliverance is the frame of prayer. His deliverance starts with prayer. His deliverance ends with prayer. We want to be delivered from persecution. What do we need to do? Get together and pray. Our deliverance starts and ends with prayer. Then I will just take the time to observe that if you've been to a prayer meeting, you understand why the world is in the shape it's in. Because prayer meetings are poorly attended. Church has forgotten how to make earnest prayer to God. I have certainly never been to a prayer meeting where a majority of any congregation that I've been part of, and I've been part of many, where a majority of the church gathers, or where a majority of the church that's gathered prays. It happens. There are a few churches that do it. But by and large, the idea of the whole church gathering and making earnest prayer together is obsolete or seemingly obsolete among the churches that I've been a part of. And I don't think the churches I've been a part of are, are notorious for their, their laxity, for having Christians who don't really care. Quite the opposite. The church in that era made earnest prayer to God in which the overwhelming majority of God's people joined together to pray out their, pour out their hearts. That doesn't happen today, by and large. And we wonder then why we don't see deliverances like this one that Peter experienced. This deliverance was accomplished by God in response to prayer through his angel. So Peter goes to prison, and we're told that he's guarded by four squads of soldiers, verse 4, and how those squads are deployed then is described in verse 6. One of the commentators with a little more information from Roman military records says it's like this. You have four squads of four soldiers each, 16 men. The, the squads are relieved every three hours. So you do two three-hour shifts during your workday. Here's how the squad is deployed. Four men come into the cell. 
One is chained to Peter on one side. One is chained to Peter on the other side. So he's independently chained to two guards. There are two more guards who stand outside the door of the cell. Those four are on duty for three hours, then they go off duty and the next four come. You've got 16 men working full-time, six hours a day, across two shifts, to guard one man. Well, that's a pretty impressive deployment of manpower. I was reading this uh, last week about Rikers Island, a notorious prison outside New York City, or maybe inside New York City, and the cost of uh, the prison is notorious because it's the, the worst performing in America. It costs something like $435,000 a year to keep one inmate in Rikers. It's about what it would cost to guard one man with 16 men full time. That's what Herod does. And of course, it's a tremendous waste of manpower because these 16 men don't don't keep Peter in. They fail. The thing that they were supposed to do, obviously Herod is a little bit suspicious of Peter's power to escape. Otherwise, he wouldn't bother guarding one man with 16. It doesn't matter to Peter. He's sleeping like a log. Well, I'm going to be killed tomorrow. Oh well. The angel is a very masculine angel. The angel comes in and wakes him up by punching him hard. The angel came in and struck him on the side. Like this angel isn't like, oh, Peter, dear. There's no gentle shaking, no feather tickling his nose. The angel comes in and pow! Pops him a good one right in the side. Again, just Jesus is arrested at Passover and then stabbed in the side while Peter is whacked in the side, wakes up and the angel says, get dressed, tie your shoes, put on your coat, we're going. Peter's like, oh, this is a cool vision. (laughs) I, I find it fascinating that even in jail, Peter was like, well, two soldiers here. Guys, I'm stripping down to my skivvies. You might as well too. Let's just take a nap because this is stupid. Peter didn't bother trying to stay clothed in prison. Anyway, the angel comes, wakes him up, and leads him past the first post, the second post of guards. They came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which swings open by itself. And they walk out, go down one street. And then, after the angel goes, Peter says, I guess that was real. Apparently, I'm free, wandering the streets of Caesarea at two in the morning. Didn't see that one coming? I love it. When he thought, when he considered this, verse 12, right, he, he thinks about it. What just happened to me? This is not something that Peter was planning on. He did not go to jail and say, God will let me out. I have nothing to fear. But he does come to this conclusion. Now I know for sure that Jesus reigns over his enemies. And he names two of those enemies. Herod, the Jews. They all wanted me dead. Jesus delivered me. He has power over enemies. Now I know 
for certain that the Lord reigns over enemies. He doesn't say, well, I don't know, it's just dumb luck. I could have been James. I could be dead right now. He says, God, let me go. God rules these enemies. And then, of course, this scene as he comes to the home of John Mark's mother is pretty classic. It's both entertaining and edifying how Christ rescues his people. Rhoda, the name is the diminutive form of the word rose. That's the rhododendron, the rose tree. Well, this is Rosie the housemaid, the classic ditz, comes to the door, decides it is Peter, and then runs to tell everybody, Peter's here. And the rest of the the rest of everybody says, no, it's his angel. Meaning perhaps his ghost, perhaps more likely his guardian angel. The angel told off to watch him has come to visit us. They finally realize that somebody's still knocking. Go let him in. There he is. And Peter gives him a very brief message. Go tell these things to James and the brethren. He tells how the Lord brought him out. Go tell these things to James and the brethren. That's obviously not the James who's already dead. That's the other James, the Lord's brother. There's the Apostle James, the son of Zebedee. That's the one who was killed, the brother of the Apostle John. And the James who's still alive is James, the Lord's brother, the son of Joseph and Mary. He's now the pastor of the Jerusalem church. So Peter says, let him know what happened. So he wasn't there. And he departed and went to an undisclosed location. Peter knew that Probably the first place that Herod would think to visit was the home of John Mark's mother. Commentators point out the obvious wealth and status of this woman. She's a female householder. She has a big enough home that she can employ at least a housemaid. She has an outer gate on the street that is not the same as the front door of the house. Right? That's a measure of wealth that none of us would say we've attained to. I have a compound with a gate on the street. That's where... The church gathers. So Peter comes, delivers his message, and then hightails it for somewhere to go into hiding. He doesn't say and say, stay and say, well, Jesus delivered me once. He'll deliver me again. The right response to persecution is not to court it or to say, hey, God can deliver me. So I need to take no steps to deliver myself. He goes and he hides. And Herod looks for him. There's no small stir among the soldiers. Sixteen of us failed. Herod can't find him. And so he leaves town, and, or rather he went down from Judea to Caesarea. So perhaps this story takes place in Jerusalem, I guess. Not Caesarea, I misspoke earlier. So... What happens next? Well, Herod kills the guards. It's not clear whether he killed just the four who were on duty at the time of the escape or if he killed all 16. It's Christ getting his revenge. You harm my people, I destroy you. First of all, the guards, and then Herod too. And that's how Luke winds up the chapter. Herod takes this opportunity to kind of make it up with the people of Tyre and Sidon because they had had some political dispute. They come to him and Herod gives this speech that Luke doesn't bother to record because it was pointless. 
And yet the people love to flatter Herod in order to try to get him on their good side, get on his good side. The voice of a God and not of a man. Well, God strikes him down, he's eaten by worms, and he dies. Josephus seems to tell about this same event. He describes Herod as putting on this amazing robe woven with silver fibers so that he sparkled and shimmered in the sunshine and the people all cried out that he looked like a god. So they flattered him not only for his voice but also for his clothing. As I mentioned a moment ago, right, the things Paul says there doesn't mention as the signs of an apostle, Herod uses as the signs of worldly status. But he doesn't give glory to God. An angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. So there's our application for this week, for Thanksgiving. If you sit down at the table and say, well, look at this turkey that I provided. Look at my wealth and generosity, everybody. You fail. You might not be struck down and eaten by worms at that moment. But you're imitating Herod. You're not glorifying God for his generosity. So Christ gets his revenge on the guards and on Herod. Revenge is not evil. Revenge is only evil when it's carried out by the wrong agent. Namely, by you and I. We could say that it's a pleasure too great for mortals. We don't know when to stop. God knows when to stop. Christ knows how to take his revenge, which he does on those who persecute his people. So whose kingdom do you want to be part of? Herod's kingdom or Jesus' kingdom? Which kingdom is superior? Which kingdom is more likely to endure? Herod, who thinks because he's got a silver shirt and that the crowds are yelling adulation that he's really something? Or Jesus, who protects and saves his people much of the time, who sometimes allows them to be martyred? Christ doesn't live in order to always protect us. He does live in order to glorify himself. So if you're called to martyrdom, Don't say, I don't believe in the reign of Christ anymore. Right? Why? Well, ultimately because Christ himself was martyred. He's the original faithful martyr, the original faithful witness. He's not asking you to do anything he didn't do. He left safety in heaven and came here and was killed at Passover, not just hit in the side by an angel, but struck in the side with a spear by a soldier. And therefore, if he lets you die in his service, he's saying, you're worthy to be like me. You have the same privilege that I had. And if he spares you like he spared Peter, then rejoice in that too. Say, yes, I know that Christ reigns over his enemies. Ultimately, we know that martyrdom is not the ultimate evil because Christ became the one who reigned over his enemies by dying in our place. That's how he became king. That's the kingdom we serve. The kingdom Herod serves is the one where if they don't serve you right, kill them all. That's Herod's kingdom. That's the world. That's the devil. The kingdom of Christ is if they don't serve you right, 
go and die for them so they can live. Jesus reigns. And Luke tells us that with the last two verses. The word of God grew and multiplied. Herod, eaten by worms and dies. He's gone, he's off the stage. The word of God endures. The word of God multiplies. There was one Herod, now there are no Herods. But the word of God, there was a hundred, there was 5,000 believers, now there's many, many more believers. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their ministry. Barnabas and Saul show their authority over money. They took money from Antioch to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Famine relief. Showing that because they have power over money, they rightfully have spiritual authority. Luke shows that over and over and over. It's a call to us, again, to have uh, power over money, to not let money rule us. But it's also a reminder that Christ reigns. One of the ways he reigns is through faithful individuals like Barnabas and Saul who have power over money and who physically enact the unity of Jew and Gentile in the church by taking Gentile money and using it to bail out starving Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Jesus reigns. He reigns over persecutors. He reigns over his church. Submit to the Lord. Worship him. Receive his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son and that he reigns over persecutors. Help us, Lord, not to fear persecution, to understand that you have power over persecutors and that if they kill us, that's your plan and your gift to us. We thank you that Jesus died so we could live. We thank you that James was privileged to be like his master and die in the service of Christ. We thank you that you delivered Peter. Father, we pray that you would help us not to live in fear. Not to look around and say, oh, this world is bad. I don't know what I'm going to do. Help us instead to look up to heaven and say, Jesus reigns. And whatever the persecutors do, whatever the persecutors think they have or are, Jesus is superior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your kingdom crushed Herod's. That your kingdom is conquering all the kingdoms of the earth. And that they will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Help us to get that in our heads and to live as citizens of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.